0: Please. Where are we? We're home now, Nora. We're working at home now.
1: And it's all because of you. It's all because you sent us home to do our jobs. Did you get the email that I sent you today, Nora? Email? No.
0: We were, we were on our way to lunch, but I don't remember. Did, did we eat? I don't. You won't be hungry anymore, Nora.
2: Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the independent and adventurous podcast for killer films. I'm Paolo Caron, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're joined again by Emily Neal to discuss Cindy Sherman's 1997 artsy horror film, Office Killer. Two things I want to bring up. First, we forgot to mention this in discussion, but Office Killer has four credited writers. Cindy Sherman received a story credit, and the great director Todd Haynes contributed additional dialogue but the actual screenplay is credited to Elise McAdam and Tom Kalin. Tom Kalin is best known for his award-winning film, Swoon, or the more recent film, Savage Grace. Elise McAdam, who is also given a story credit, has an infinitely more obscure filmography. However, her wedding announcement in the New York Times style section describes her as, quote, a freelance writer and researcher, Also, a director of Art for Animals, an organization in New York that sells donated artwork privately to support emergency financial assistance for local animal shelters and rescue organizations. End quote. Second, in the discussion, we completely forgot the name of one of the protagonist's co-workers, a man who was given his job in exchange for not dating the owner's daughter. That character's actual name is Mr. Landau, and he is played by actor Mike Hodge. Alright, that's it from me. Here's Carrie with the plot summary.
0: When Doreen finds her job at Constant Consumer Magazine has been cut back to part-time, it rocks her world. But when her supervisor accidentally dies in front of her at work late one night, it pushes her over the edge. What happens next is a downward spiral of murder and madness as Doreen takes bringing work home with her a bit too literally.
2: Office Killer is a largely visual film, a natural side effect of Cindy Sherman's career as a photographer. This, combined with the film's straightforward plot, does not leave us much for sampling. Our only clip comes from the flashback Doreen has to the car accident that killed her father, played by Eric Bogosian, and crippled her mother, played in this scene by Marceline Hugo. This scene, along with one or two others, heavily imply Doreen's father had previously molested or sexually abused her. And the chaos you hear at the back end of the clip is young Doreen holding her father's groping hands behind his seat, directly causing him to crash the car. Here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for our discussion of Office Killer.
0: We ought to wash her mouth out with soap. Wouldn't believe her filthy lies. Watch where you're going, Peter.
2: What did you say to your mother, Doreen?
0: Your daddy's talking to you. She's ashamed of herself. She should be. She has a dirty mind. I can't even repeat what she said about you.
2: Ah. Uh, she loves me. Don't you, honey? You love your daddy, don't you? You're probably just jealous of your mother, aren't you, Doreen?
0: Don't encourage her, Peter.
2: You ticklish there, honey? Huh? (laughs) Hey!
0: Secret Cinema. Secret Cinema. Secret
1: Cinema. Secret Cinema. Cinnabon. Cinnabon.
2: Cinnabon. All right, we're back again. Uh, Emily is back again, and we back are
0: again. back
2: again, and we are talking about well, specifically Office Killer, the 1997 film by Cindy Sherman. But technically, we are covering the entire film career of Cindy Sherman uh, because we also bothered to watch her two and a half minute long short film. Doll clothes. So, we're talking about doll clothes, we're talking about Office Killer, we're talking about Cindy Sherman and Emily. And
0: everything is in our between.
2: <laughs> well, what is between, though? Uh, there's like 20... The space. 22 years uh, <laughs> for which her to cry and for the laughter to make her come back for more.
0: Well, and when, did, when was Doll Clothes made?
2: 1975. So, yeah, 22 oh, years wow. between the two movies. So, yeah, not really much of a career in the film industry in between. Though she appeared in Pecker,
0: yes, in between the John Waters movie, yeah. yeah, she really likes obvious
1: titles too. Like this short film is about doll clothes, yeah. and then this one is about an office killer. Good
2: point, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, most of her ph- uh, photography collections also have very obvious titles, or they're not titled.
2: <laughs> yeah, do you, can you think of like a title of a Cindy Sherman piece off the top of your head? Well,
0: Paolo, let's yeah. dive right into Cindy Sherman's work, eh?
2: Yeah, Carrie. Before we talk about the movie that we talk about, the Secret <laughs> let's get into let's contextualize it because most of the time we're talking about. Filmmakers, and we are distinctly not talking about a person who's a filmmaker this time. I
0: don't think she would primarily describe herself as a film. Oh yeah,
2: and for no, for good reason.
0: Unless she was talking about photography film.
2: Her yeah, she her true success <laughs> is as a photographer. And Carrie, you're uh, encyclopedia I
0: wanted to give us some background. That's what they call me. <laughs> yeah, Carrie encyclopedia chafy. That's funny because I used to read Encyclopedia Brown and and wish I was him. But, anyway. You never will be. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, only boys get to be detectives.
2: But that was last episode's theme. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This episode of movie can be anything they want, primarily serial killers or embezzlers.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or, like, wretched bitches. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Watching this movie after I did all the research about Cindy Sherman was actually really fascinating because I have known about Cindy Sherman because I, you know, I've studied art history and I have, like, a broad understanding of her work and her importance in photography, but I went through, like, you know, all of her life uh, and got to know her pretty well today (laughs) before we watched the movie. And um, just to go back to what Emily was saying about obvious titles, her first big collection of uh, film print or uh, photography prints that she did, like, her first big exhibition, it was called Bus Riders, yep. <laughs> and she what she did was she dressed herself in costumes to represent, I want to say it was like 20 to 40 people that she had seen on the bus. So she just recreated what they looked like, but as herself. Mm-hmm. So she, her her big thing with photography that's been a theme with her career has been using herself as a model to represent everyday people and the human element she sees in the world. So after she did Bus Drivers, she did a series called uh, Untitled Film Stills.
2: Oh yeah, and that's, uh, that's the one I've seen. And that's of.
0: the one that really broke her out as an artist. Where people were like, oh, Cindy Sherman, that's a name to know in the art world. And with that series, what she did was she used herself again, but she recreated film stills from movies or, you know, used herself as a prop in uh, what she had assembled as, like, a movie set. Um, and actually, there's a couple pieces of that series at the Chicago Art Institute. I, I mean, you can go see them now. They're And
2: some of the Contemporary Museum, too.
0: Yeah, uh, her work is kind of all over the place. And it's funny because she's, she's not that old. I want to say she... She was
1: born in 54, I remember. Yeah,
0: so she's in her, what, 60s, 70s? Um, and she started getting into museums in the 80s. So she really almost immediately kind of hit it big as a photographer, and especially with her point of view as a photographer and a, as a woman. Um, one thing I want to bring up before I like dive too far deep and we can't get back yeah. is... <laughs> Um, so, Cindy Sherman got the MacArthur uh, Fellowship, or the, it's also known as the Genius Award, right. in 1995, and part of that is basically you get, like, half a million dollars with no strings attached. Like, you, they just give you half a million dollars. So, I wonder if she used that money to fund this project.
2: I would assume not just because I saw Ted Hope and James Sheamus's names. I think I said James Sheamus, but I definitely saw Christine Vachon, or Vachon, or yes. Vachon, however you pronounce it. I'm sorry, I'm totally butchering it, but she... Uh, we famously worked with um, Todd Haynes. We've talked about her before. Yeah. Uh, she, I think, she, she has been a producer on storytelling. Yes, yeah. she's
0: done almost all of Todd Solondz's movies. She did Velvet Gold. She helped produce Velvet Goldmine. She's done a couple of Harmony Corinne's movies. She yeah. did Boys Don't Cry. Like she's big in the the gay indie world. Yeah, and as so a this, producer, this
2: seems very much like something that uh, she helped foster rather than Cindy. i'm sherman. sure todd
0: haynes got her involved
2: oh, oh yeah well todd haynes worked on this movie to some degree in he a wrote
0: role. yeah he, he wrote additional dialogue yeah
2: and so i don't think this doesn't seem like cindy sherman making like a, a dream project with a genius grant as much as someone saying hey would you like to make a movie you're a great image creator how would you like to work with us and and do something with with that I mean, as if like i say that as if like she wasn't doing something with that but like <laughs> why, why did she make a moving picture like the usual way They i mean kubrick was a photographer before right. he was a director so it's like why not her her, her photography is amazing it's incredible yeah. and she has a great compositional sense yeah uh, so yeah why those not? are
0: both shot. non-arguable points about <laughs> her i think relating to this movie the one thing i will say though I like this movie. I'll just flat out say it. I like this movie. But I will say that her compositional strength and her eye for, like, light and sets and all of that is spot on. But she's not necessarily a great storyteller.
2: Oh, yeah. And I would question the degree to which there is even a story to this. Like, there seems to be a story somewhere within the screenplay of this movie. But it is de-emphasized on screen so much that it, it seems like the focus of the film is the atmosphere or the milieu more than anything.
1: Yeah, because there were, like, nothing's really happening, but there's just, like, a close-up of uh, everyday objects in the house or in yeah. the office. Where it's just, you're just zooming in and looking at something and you're like, this is great to look at, but it's not advancing anything.
2: No, yeah, and even even if you were to, like, give the movie a lot of credit in terms of what its plot is, mm-hmm. it's a very familiar plot. It's um somebody... Uh, it's I, I was thinking of even Miss 45 in terms of the fact that someone accidentally... Or someone dies in a circumstance where the main character is, like, innocent. And then she runs with it and just kills more and more people. And then there's also the elements of, like, the killer who keeps the bodies and hangs out with them. Like, these are all very familiar tropes. Yeah. And what makes this movie interesting is not anything they do with the story, but it's the visual. This is a very much an aesthetic movie overall. Yeah. Like, to the same degree, I've referred to Only God Forgives before on the same token, and it is very much like that in terms of, if you don't like the aesthetic of this movie, then you don't like this movie at all.
0: Yeah. I would argue, though, that this, that Office Killer, it has subtext, but the subtext is not coming out. No. Like, one of the things, um, I kind of picked up on this halfway through the movie is... Every time Carol Kane, uh, or Doreen, her character Doreen, yeah. is in the shot, there's almost always something obstructing her. Like there's a lamp, or she's in the basement and there's a you know a, a pipe, or yeah. she's eating at a table and there's like a candlestick or something on the table. Like there's some, always, or she's standing next to a cubicle and half the cubicle is covering her up. So I was trying to read into that. You know, and then at the end, uh, through uh, throughout the whole movie, you know, Doreen's character is this frumpy, doesn't-care-about-appearances type character, but then as the movie progresses, you see her embracing certain feminine appearance items, like, you know, she wears those earrings. Or, or... at least, like,
2: modernizing her look. Like, she, in the beginning, she has, like, very, almost, like, baby doll makeup. Like, the, yeah. Like yeah. the big pink cheeks. But, and her hair is put up in just, like, little balls on her head. But by the end, she, her hair is down. Her face looks much more normal. So there's definitely a, a, an evolution. Though, admittedly, I mean, this is my second time seeing the movie. And I didn't really notice it when it started. I just noticed, like most of the way through the movie that she, her her image had progressed, clearly. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. yeah and
0: at the end, like, I, I don't know about if you noticed this, Emily, but the thing that was really driving me nuts was how crazy her, her eyebrows, eyebrows were.
1: <laughs> they were supposed to be crazy, and they, Yeah, and they were. They
0: read Psycho Killer. Yeah. <laughs> Office Killer. Office Killer. <laughs> um, but by the end, when she's, like, checking herself out in the rearview mirror, her eyebrows are on point, her uh, Her eyeliner is looking real good. And she's wearing lipstick and she's got cool sunglasses. You know, like, she has done a total 180 from the beginning. And I was wondering if maybe the implication is... Hold on, I wrote it down. Um, The implication of learning femininity is that you learn it through violence and aggression. But, again... I am, like, totally reading into it. I was trying to pull the subtext out of the movie, and I don't know if that's actually what Cindy Sherman was going for or what, but that was just me, like, looking for it. I read yeah. it
1: similar, but it was, instead of finding it through violence, it was just being proactive and making decision, decisions rather than letting things happen. Oh, sure. Yeah. she's so uh, painfully passive in the beginning.
0: Yeah, and but, then she kind of gets that trigger because somebody in the office accidentally dies. Yeah, yeah, and
1: it's similar, I mean, with the whole flashback to her interactions with her father when we see the flashbacks. Yeah. Those are pretty um, enlightening, I guess, I'll say. Yeah. yeah.
2: Should we kind of talk like what the broad, um, like or like the details of the sort of plot that yeah. there is, just so we can contextualize this? Because, do take it? yeah, do you want to try?
1: Well, there's not a lot, like you guys said, there's yeah. not a lot that happens. It's just, it's introduced right away by, um, is it Carol Kane herself doing the voiceover? Yes. yes. Um, yeah, they work for a magazine. A uh,
2: constant consumer magazine.
1: Constant consumer. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Oh, subtext. <laughs> yeah, her, the first line goes something like, The law of economics threatens to downsize us. You may be terminated. Yeah. Which is just like, that's, that's the opening is that there's going to be a bunch of layoffs and, um, Triple Horn, who plays Nora, um, is the one that's delegated to, um, basically fire a bunch of people and turn them into part-time workers and, And um, remote workers. And, re- yeah, they, uh, all, in this, yeah, they go through automation where Doreen has to learn the computer and people get computers installed in their home and start learning email very relevant to now, again. Yeah, still. People are very
0: concerned 20 about 20 years later.
1: Yeah, we're still scared of the robots and them taking our jobs <laughs> and being downsized and... And um, email. Yeah. And <laughs> what it seems to be, an office primarily run by women. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, most of the characters are women and the male characters are kind of just... I don't know. I don't want to say antagonists because some of them are nice, but
2: they're. I mean, I don't want to say that they're stereotypes of men because they're they're believable men, but they're yes. just like they are definitely not like the the what is the black guy's name? I he was the one character whose oh. name I kept missing the whole movie. Riley? No. He's the but he's her yeah. friend. He's and a nice
1: guy. He, and... He's
2: he's basically like he, he's the her racist father wouldn't let. Uh, uh Doreen's racist father who created the, the magazine wouldn't let uh Riley I'll say Riley uh date Doreen but somehow he, for some reason he like gets a job at the magazine this like payment like you don't date my yeah. daughter I'll set you up and so he seems to mostly be just like a normal nice guy but the other guys are kind of slimy Gary is really an asshole like before he dies he's like uh, bad-mouthing Doreen uh Michael Imperioli's character Daniel who is dating Nora seems to be
1: he's like the IT guy
2: yeah is he I, I couldn't figure out if he knew if he was involved with the, the no he didn't seem to be involved so he seemed like he was a fine normal yeah he was IT a good guy. guy the other guy that gets killed uh I, I don't really remember. know
0: the homeless man no, no the just the office clerk yeah.
2: Oh, yes. The actually, I mean, that's the thing is this is kind of a movie where it's the the women are figured, just more prominent. Men... I
0: I figured we wouldn't call anyone by their characters' names because their character names didn't matter.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. Doreen and Nora and Kim. It, yeah, like, but it's so much mentioned. easier to just say Molly, Molly Ringwald, GM, Molly Ringworm, uh, yeah. GM. Is that Triple her? Horn? Yeah,
0: Triple Horn and, and Carol, Carol Kane. Yeah. It's just so much easier to say that than yeah. to be like. Oh, I mean Carol Kane, I mean I still yeah.
2: wrote down some of these names. Also, I read somewhere that Virginia was supposed to be like a an
0: Ariana Huffington stand-in. Yeah,
2: which I was like I'm not the audience for this critique. And <laughs> I, well, I we're really... 20
0: years too late. Yeah. Ariana Huffington has reinvented herself. Yeah. I agree. She uh, yeah, she's supposed to be just, she well, she used to be like I guess an editor who'd come in and just cut half the staff and uh Reinvent yeah. the magazine or whatever. But now she's got her own uh, successful media outlet. Yeah,
2: Huffington Post, who famously said that Donald Trump was entertainment, and so therefore they were not going to cover it. Look well, you how that, that played out for them. <laughs> they, uh, they great, Super well. <laughs> great uh, great establishment. But um, so some more of the plot that we should fill in, just to give some more context, is that the reason people are being laid off is that the companies. Losing money, though I did notice that the thing they're, they were mailing out uh, to the employees said that it was because of low so, worker pro- productivity, that they were cutting everyone down from full-time to part-time. Uh, nice. I wrote that. Nice. Uh, but, uh, it was
1: important that everybody understood why they were being It was their off.
2: fault, <laughs> but it wasn't actually their fault. It was that Nora, Jean uh, Triplehorn's character, is embezzling money. And so, because of her embezzling money, the, the office is falling apart, which leads to the situation where Doreen and Gary are alone in the office, and Gary electrocutes himself, and Doreen gets into the habit of collecting dead bodies and bringing them to her house to hang out. He's and, her
1: first dead friend. Yeah. And what she says is that people don't really die, they leave memories, like, and then dead people are just inside of you. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and oh, then man. and then there's the flashback to her kind of smiling in a cop car after her parents' car accident. Yeah. I, it was almost implied that her dad was sexually abusing her. It, I mean, was, it was very
2: blatantly. Over, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But you don't see it until later when he like grabs her leg and that's she causes the car accident of her dad because he grabs her. Knee to try and tickle her, and she doesn't let go of his arm, and And, he can't control the car. And in the
2: scene, the mother's like, "You should have. You should be ashamed of what you said about your father. Like, like your father's such a good man. Why would you say that about him?" Combined with him like grabbing her legs, like, yeah.
0: Well, and her her father's played by Eric Bogosian. Yeah,
2: Yeah. which is just like a very. But
0: okay, so really weird. One of the things that I learned about Cindy Sherman is she, and I'm not sure if this was a term given to her at the time or it's more of like a retrospective label, but there was an exhibition a couple years ago in 2009 at the Met in New York and it was called The Pictures Generation. And Cindy Sherman was included in it, but it also included other artists like Barbara Kruger, Louise Lawler, David Saleh, Julian Schnabel is yeah. considered, like, an outsider of the Pictures Generation. But Eric Bogosian is in the Pictures Generation. Lori Simmons, um, who is Lena Dunham's mom. Um, and um, a couple other people. But the Pictures Generation is this group of, like, 70s and 80s artists who were really... Their work was characterized by their obsession with advertising as influence and um, images from the mainstream media and how those images are appropriated onto culture. So, like, for example, Cindy Sherman, as we've been talking about, she uses herself to reflect other people in her photographs. And, like, as a counterpoint, Barbara Kruger, she uses bold text, usually in, like, black and red or white, Against a black and white image to make a comment about society or the media or consumerism and so on and so forth, and so it's interesting It was interesting to see Eric Bogosian be in the movie since he is considered a part of that movement.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's just he he usually and makes it, little cameos in movies anyway. So it was, right, it was cool I know to see he's him. more
0: yeah. of a movie guy anyway. Yeah. But just knowing that she was a part of this the Pictures Generation. It was interesting to watch the movie because there were a couple points where she actively used text or projected text, like, for example, with the credits. Oh, the credits were so cool. Yeah, the credits were awesome, and they were very visually wonderful. Yeah, we should
2: specify that the opening credits, it's like a dark room and seemed to be, I don't know if it was her basement or the office with the lights off, but there's definitely some office equipment. It seemed like there were some dead bodies that the lights were going on, but in a dark room, the only light is light shining through some sort of stencil of, like, the name of an actor or the title of the movie. But the the title moves across the room, and the light bends with the object it's moving over, and it also reveals the pattern or the color underneath it. And so you get these just... I don't know. I've never seen another movie do that with the credits, and it's so immediately visually impressive.
0: Yeah. And she... And there was a couple other moments where she used text on screen to deliver a subtle message, like you said, with... Low worker productivity, yeah. or oh, you know, with the typewriter, have right? Or,
2: email usually pop yeah. pops up on screen multiple
1: times. Yeah, exactly.
0: And so that that's a big part of her work and the movement that she's kind of been grouped into. And so it was just interesting to like watch for those details of like, ah, there's a trademark of your your movement. Yeah, like, oh, there's a thing that I know about the the other artists in your in your group.
2: Yeah, and this movie, part of the reason we were talking about her as a photographer more than as a filmmaker is because it doesn't feel like a conventional film. It doesn't follow the conventional rhythms, and it's definitely not trying to please a viewer in the same way. It feels much more meditative, kind of like an art piece. Like, it very much feels like, instead of seeing... A lot of shots seem like sh- like images you could see of a Cindy Sherman In a Cindy Sherman, like, show in a gallery. Mm -hmm. it's just the fact that they are, like... There's one after another, and they are... You're seeing them for a duration. Mm -hmm. There's not even necessarily too much movement... In most of the shots. No,
1: everything's pretty still. And what was... One of my favorite shots was when her mother, who is crippled from the car accident, slowly goes up the Jerry chair. Yeah. (laughs) But you're also watching Carol Kane busy herself in the kitchen. And it seems to take forever. Yeah. That is a really nice shot. Um... And I have to mention, I, I had to look it up because the woman was so familiar. She's been in a lot, but I remember her most from being the librarian in the Ghostbusters movie.
2: Oh, yeah, she did look really familiar. Who? The, the mom. The mom. Uh, Carol oh, Kane's
1: mom. yeah, you're right. Yeah, and Carol Kane's relationship with her mom is all sorts of weird because she takes care of her, but she also has to... See have spent most of her life resenting her, but yeah, not yeah, acknowledging Because it. she
0: won't acknowledge that her husband, you know, abused her daughter. Yeah.
1: But, I mean, Carol Kane was upset when she died.
0: <laughs> yeah. She yelled at her for dying. <laughs> yeah, she
1: said you and Dad can dance in hell together. Yeah, <laughs> and Car- and her mom was the only person who died that she didn't kill.
2: Well, she didn't kill Gary, right? Or did she kill Gary? No, she, she
0: oh, didn't. you're right. I right. mean, she accidentally killed Gary. D- Gary, because okay. she backed into the light box. Oh, that was what
2: it is. But, yeah, but she, she
0: didn't do It, it was her
2: ass. mom. She had no part in it at all. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, the woman who played the Ariana Huffington stand-in. Yeah. She was a protege of Fassbender. Oh. The German. Uh, what filmmaker. What movies? She was in Lola. Okay. And she was in. She was also in Europa. Oh.
2: Oh Rome. yeah. Okay. I totally know she is in Europa. She was
0: in Cradle Will Rock. She was in Romance and Cigarettes, but on the flip side... <laughs> she was in Romance
2: and Cigarettes. This is really Peach crazy. Secret Cinema movie, everybody. She
0: is married to Robert Longo. And Robert Longo... Okay, so another Cindy Sherman thing. Cindy Sherman created in 1974 this like nonprofit art organization called uh, Hall Walls. It's in... Uh, I believe it's in New Jersey... Maybe it's in New York. It might be in New York. But she created it with these three other artists. One of them was Robert Longo. And what do you know? His wife ends up in one of her movies. Yeah. Only feature film. So yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Everyone it's like so incestuous.
2: His wife was just waiting for the follow-up to Doll Clothes the whole time. Oh
0: but Robert Longo, by the way, he was the only other artist that she established that art organization with who made a movie. Yeah. And he made Johnny Mnemonic. Oh,
2: okay. Isn't weird. that weird? Yeah. He
0: also directed the music videos for Bilo- Bizarre Love Triangle from New Order. Yeah. And he directed the music video for The One I Love by R.E.M.
2: Okay. Weird. But he's
0: primarily a painter and sculptor.
2: Man. That's a weird subset of... The, yeah. <laughs> well, I,
0: I gotta tell you, like I once I started uh, researching Cindy Sherman, I fell down this rabbit hole of just like artist roulette where everything kind of went back to her but i kept going down these you know long threads and pulling them and then i'd end up back to her somehow like this robert longo thing i started researching barbara um sokoa and then i end up with him and then i end up back at cindy sherman it's like whoa but uh uh cindy sherman actually started as a painter but she got really frustrated with the medium. She was she felt like everything had already been done with it. So that's why she switched to photography. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can take a that break. That woman, right.
1: though, that played the editor or whatever. Virginia? Her accent was so weird to me. Yeah. I yeah. Well, she's German. It. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't obviously German, but I guess she did a good job of trying to assimilate her accent. But yeah, I, I liked, I, the way she died was one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. Like, really passive. Like, well, just and as, take out her asthma meds. And
2: that's, yeah, she, okay, she takes her as she, the, what uh, Doreen does to Virginia is that Virginia needs an inhaler. And Doreen somehow switches out the, uh, the asthma medication from the inhaler with a butane-like refill thing, <laughs> and so she takes like a huge hit of butane and dies because that, that would be poison. <laughs> that would be an poison. Well, but and
0: she just... inhaled it twice before she was like,
1: "Oh crap!" Yeah, oh, I didn't not... even pick up on that. I thought she just put an empty one in there.
2: No, it it had like a little butane thing. but I was just Man. like I was just thinking like I it seemed like very absurd that uh butane and an asthma <laughs> nail would be compatible at all, but it was
0: still like yeah, an it interesting like choice. you need to get the right She size. was definitely
1: working her way up because Virginia was only the second kill that yeah. she kept and she got just more violent as they progressed.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Was who is her her third one was the Girl Scouts. And yes. she didn't. She kind. She didn't seek
0: them out. They came right to her door, and she, I think she just made a snap decision to yeah. like. Oh. Well, but right, if you remember, right before the Girl Scouts came, she and her mom got in a fight.
2: Ooh, yeah. yeah.
0: So I don't know if her mom may her mom maybe motivated. That's her definitely
2: out. a classic serial killer movie thing of like, mom, you're yelling at me. I gotta take the anger out on the first person that shows up. Yeah. yeah. And those little girls, those poor little girls. I feel like that 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 moment. Is like the most surprisingly dark thing that happens in the whole movie. Is that yeah, there's like two Girl girls. Scouts are just like r- murdered. Because I can't believe else, nobody
0: is looking for those girls. Everything Scouts.
2: else ties into the office, everything else ties into her work life. And that is just like a totally random murder, not to mention the two most innocent. The entire movie. Yeah,
0: those poor Girl Scouts.
2: But they also don't necessarily make their bodies very graphic. They're just kind of like sitting in a chair together with like a pitcher of lemonade in front of them. Uh, yeah, but you know what
1: is graphic? <laughs> Gary Michael. Gary,
2: what happens to Gary's body, Emily?
1: It turns into <laughs> rotting. Garbage flesh. <laughs> Rotting human pieces. Yeah, during... I do I do like the time that Cindy Sherman took. Like she she must have just really wanted to up the gore and uh it was gross. Like Carol it was Kane gross. Is trying to clean up a chest that is falling apart on this man by taping it and spraying Windex on it. <laughs>
2: Apparently, according to IMDb, I guess it was supposed to be way more graphic. Yeah. And GN Triplehorn was, like, bothered by how graphic it was supposed to be. I don't know if that's exactly the reason why it got toned down, but it definitely... uh, It was supposed to be even, like, even more gruesome. And so Gary is, like, the big remnant of it, when that moment where Jeanne Triplehorn has been brought to Doreen's lair of sorts, and she gets up and trips and... Goes to catch herself on Gary, and her hand just goes, goes through, through his stomach into Ugh. his body. Yeah.
0: So I gross. was
1: also thinking during this scene where it's just—it's almost just like it's too much at one point, maybe because her hand is just like remains inside of him for a second because she's in shock. But he was also the slimiest character. He was yeah. married, but he was also sleeping G- with Molly Ringwald, yeah. and he was just a scumbag. So I feel like. That's why he gets treated so much after death in yeah. that way. Yeah,
0: he openly told uh, Doreen, He's, he was just like, You're pathetic! You're, you're worthless! You think like, I want to be here with you? Yeah. 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 So, not saying he deserved to die, but he should have been the first no one. No one more
2: does die. <laughs>
0: yeah. You know, okay, so Emily, did you like this
1: movie? Yeah, I do really like this movie. What about you, Paulo?
2: I do like it, too. I liked it... Way less than I did last time, just because the seeing it the first time, the style like really impressed me a lot. And rewatching it, there's not a lot of complexity to it, but the style is still there. It's still very beautifully shot. A Blu-ray of this movie or seeing like a film print of this would look stunning. It would yeah. look gorgeous. But
0: the reason I ask if you guys like it is because I online or at least still to today. This movie is not well regarded. People do not like it. You know, it's it's got a 4.9 rating on IMDb. Most of the critical reviews were negative, especially when it came out. Roger Ebert didn't even review this. Ma'am. What were,
1: were there specific things? Because, I mean, I enjoyed watching it, and I was,
0: Oh, I... a lot of them just said she, like, really missed the mark, or what she was going for wasn't successful, or even saying things like it was, you know, it was barely a movie, or... Um, it but, is short. It, yeah, it, isn't, it is short.
2: It isn't really going for much, either. Like, it's, like, I do genuinely like it, but I like it because of, the piece it's it's sort of an art piece it's not really like yeah. uh, that's you can't compare it to i'm trying to think of another serial killer movie uh like 7 i guess uh, just the movie i kept
0: thinking of was the voices
2: oh yeah okay that's that is a way better comparison and the voices is much more incident driven like it's very much like this happens, and then people react this way, and then like when someone gets murdered, it's a sequence rather yeah. than just like. Well, a and even thing that even
0: happens. with the voices to draw more parallels, the voices is directed by Marjane Sarjop,
2: Sar- Sa- Satrapi.
0: Satrapi and she's an artist first, and you know she made the graphic novel of Persepolis, and
2: amazing.
0: yeah, which is really great. Yeah. But then she made this movie, The Voices, with Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> and he plays a guy who is mentally ill in that he... I, does he suffer from schizophrenia? Something
2: like that. He definitely and hears voices. And he,
0: he ends up accidentally killing people that he either works with or knows socially. But then he keeps them or at least their heads, in his house and he talks to them like they're still alive. Well,
2: then he's like, he, he very quickly starts intentionally killing people after the first... Yeah. It is it is a good comparison with this.
0: Yeah, but so, it's just a... a and that movie, I would say...
2: That's a worse movie than yeah. Office Killer, but it's better as a, as a piece of entertainment. Yeah. Whereas, like I said, Office Killer doesn't really seem to try to entertain you. It's not there to be like, ooh, let's, I've had a stressful day at work. Let's unwind. Let's watch something fun. Let's watch Office Killer. I it's know. not yeah.
1: <laughs> I Well, I don't remember what year this came out, but ninety-seven. The movie, no, the, the one I'm comparing it to, Serial oh. Mom.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh. And I was
1: think, and I was even like, oh, she makes a guest appearance in Pecker, John Waters, uh, and I was thinking of Serial Mom, where you're like, yeah, like, she is uh, kind of defensive defensible like i kind of like this serial killer. Yeah, the
2: sympathetic murderer. Yeah. Yeah,
0: like yeah. she's
1: uh she's just a lady who's trying to get uh, stuff done. Serial
0: mom's so great.
1: But i don't remember what year that came out. That's, that had that's, to be the 90s. Yeah,
2: it's it? it's before this for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, i don't
1: know.
0: John Waters, good job. Uh, the the point you're making about how this movie is not for entertainment is is completely valid. Uh the thing i i now appreciate about this movie in the context of learning about Cindy Sherman is I view it as, like, a piece that she released in her career as an artist. And so, looking at it that way, it's like, oh, okay, I can see her previous exhibitions of photography and how they influenced how she got to this point where she would make this movie.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so, knowing, like, her backstory... Really helped me appreciate this movie even more. I think I did like it more this time. And
2: knowing she's a photographer, you can see the photographer's eye of eye for detail in every shot. Like you mentioned before, like it's that's part of the, the thing with um, Carol Kane's character, Doreen. Her head being obscured is there's there's just stuff. There's always stuff. Yeah, on she's the just edges setting of every up shot. shots. Yeah. Like like there's shots. Like I remember there's at least one shot where. Doreen is on the couch watching TV in the basement, and she has the two bodies on either side, and the TV is casting light on them, but there's also like another light that's slightly behind the TV to the right, and then in the background behind the couch, there's two lamps that are lit, and otherwise, it's a dark basement, but there's all these little points of things that... She's drawing your attention to, and not in a cluttered, muddy way, but in a very pointed photographer way of like this, I'm getting everything. There's a complexity to every yeah. room. There's like, you talk about the shots of the Jerry chair. There's not only the shot where Carol Kane is in the kitchen doing something and going up, but there's another one where it's from the 90 degree angle from that, where it's showing the mother go up the staircase and, and then there's just another room that I don't think we ever actually see in the movie, but we can see the wood paneling and we can see the furniture that's in there. Yeah. It's just There's so much detail being emphasized. And so you kind of live in that detail. It is, it's, I can't help but think of it as like art because they're every shot on its own if it was being judged on the photography level, would be considered a work of art. Yeah. It's on yeah, the you level could print
0: a, a still of, like, every shot of this movie. The
2: only, yeah, the only real level where you could say it fails, presuming it was intending to succeed, is on narrative. And I don't necessarily think it was trying to succeed on that front, though. Yeah.
1: There were just certain points where she would touch on them, that, but she didn't emphasize them for any kind of saliency, like... Um, this company is downsizing on its workers and everybody has a human effect, but it just goes to automation and people are upgrading and it, it kind of has like a dehumanizing effect on its own company. And then at the end, near the end, Carol Kane is telling... Um, the IT guy, Dan, is it? Daniel, yeah. Yeah, she tells him that the, her, the computer is now her best friend.
2: Well, and even relating to that, she, earlier when he's setting up her computer, she he says to her, some people like it so much they stop talking to people in person. And okay. she, in the end of the movie, she's, I mean, she's talking to people in person, but they're all dead. Well, like, and... she's just, like, talking to an imagined like audience.
0: Well, and she even has that bit where she goes in um, Nora's office because Nora's freaking out. The computer screwed something up, and she oh, she yeah. says the quote of "computers are like children; they follow where you lead. They um,
2: they don't make mistakes unless you read. In, sorry, unless
0: you lead them to the mistake. Oh, yeah, sorry. To... I, I
2: wrote on the exact quote. I just miswrote part of it, but. Uh, they don't make mistakes unless you lead them in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah. and so yeah, she is treating the computer like it's almost her, her
2: well, child yeah and there yeah there is definitely this like clear paralleling between like computers and her and this way of like a computer being a substitute for humanity and like her, embracing that in some way and as she embraces that she also is like killing people more and more brutally
0: and the computer is cold and dead and then she's got cold and dead people in her basement <laughs> yeah. that she's hanging out with exactly, when she's not yeah. on her computer yeah yeah. Like, so. yeah i think there's enough interest in this
1: storyline that it it's I, I don't know i think it's enjoyable to watch and this was my second time watching it and it's comparable to the first time
2: Well, And and while we're talking about this, like, this fascination with, like, cold, dead, lifeless things and everything, um, I know that in some, at least some of Untitled Film Stills and some of Cindy Sherman's art, there is, like, there's at least few, there's one in Chicago where it's a dead body. It's, like, a woman's dead body and there's objects laying around it, and so, I know there's not a dead body in this, but let's talk about doll clothes for a second. Let's kind of say, kind of talk about what this is, because you guys mentioned about advertising how advertising is a big thing that cindy sherman and the people and of her generation of art are talking about and um doll clothes is like a a, of a woman figure and the different clothing and going through and just like what do I want? Like, yeah,
0: I gotta say that the the animation in doll clothes was really impressive. Yeah, yeah, and that was in the 70s that she did that?
2: Yeah, it looked like a student film. It looked yeah. like something she Yeah, had very much a
0: student film. And the way it plays out is you've got this photograph of a woman who's t- topless, wearing underwear, so looking like a paper doll would, except she's a real woman. Yeah. and she's But she's a cutout of a piece of paper. And then she ends up being animated to life and going through her closet um, She was
1: really picky for a naked lady. Yeah. <laughs>
0: she went through a lot of
1: different clothes before she put on an outfit.
0: Yeah, and, like, the whole point of it is just to... I mean, I would imagine that she did it as an exercise in um, combining photography with animation. Yeah. Because all she did was... I mean, I the process of, behind it, I can imagine, was she got a friend to pose... She directed her friend in the poses she wanted her friend to make. She took photographs and then printed out those photographs, cut out her friend, and then used them in the stop motion yeah. animation. Well,
2: and it's, if anything, it shows, it speaks to uh, a, a theme throughout her work of objects in relation to people. Not people, but like the way in which like there's like that dichotomy between the two
0: or if people are being objectified
2: yeah well because it's not it's not the doll or a name of like a woman or something it's the doll clothes clothes is the key noun there doll is the modifier um and so and and you think about like i think of at least i wish i could name the the specific cindy sherman piece i'm thinking of but it's one of the woman laying her body is laying in the ground she's dead and there's objects scattered all around the body like very specific objects relating to the woman when she was alive like her sunglasses or like her high heel Mm. like it's like you emphasizing her death through the objects scattered around her Mm. and in this like we're talking about the cluttered images the way that everything is shot like the office you see the shelves with the reams of paper and, like, all the office supplies. And there's that one scene where Kim... or Molly Ringwald is arguing with, I think, Nora? Jean Triplehorn in front of a chalkboard. And the chalkboard, because it's constant Consumer Magazine, just has lists of products and objects behind her. Like, there's this constant, like, reminder of objects. And, like, the com- that's where the- we talk about the whole computer-human uh, dichotomy. Like, it definitely seems... Like, that's a really big thing, and that's coming through here a lot. I would say, I guess. Yeah, how does that
1: relate to uh, Carol Kane putting the fingers on the uh, cuckoo clock yeah. in the kitchen? Uh,
2: I mean, there you go, like, human becoming automated. Like, yeah. I, I guess it's it's like sort of playing with that same sort of imagery. Uh, and, I, I mean, this isn't really related to, but I did notice this is the second movie we've covered on Secret Cinema where a cat is on screen eating part of a dead human.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. I kept thinking about those cats and how they must have been real hungry. They yeah. had rotting flesh in the basement. Mmm, <laughs> delicious. Okay, so uh we've been talking about the cast, but the main character is Carol King. Or Carol King. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> Carol Kane. Carol yes. King. <laughs> oh. But it's too late baby. I can't take it back. Um, okay, Carol King. Uh, you may know her from Annie Hall, Dog Day Afternoon, The Princess Bride, uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and she also is on Gotham. Um, but the thing that I really appreciated about her performance, I thought she was great. Yeah. But Cindy Sherman wrote or, she didn't write this, but she cast a woman in her mid to late 40s to be in this role. And I thought it was like a really worthwhile, great role for a woman of that age. Yeah. Like, you don't see a lot of main characters that are that age in 90s movies. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> I actually, uh, nobody
1: was that young in the movie. No. Triple, Triple Horn might have been the youngest.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Besides Michael Imperioli, he was yeah. definitely a babyface, but, yeah. um, yeah. And then Molly Ringwald, we've casually mentioned, I thought she was also really great. She's good at being, like, the bitchy friend. <laughs> yeah. I think she's good at that. She, in case you're listening, you don't know who she is, she was in Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, Pretty in Pink. I found out, just some, like, random trivia about Molly Ringwald, I found out that David Lynch sent her the script for Blue Velvet and wanted her to play the Laura Dern part. But Molly Ringwald's mom got the script and read it and thought it was so disturbing that she never showed it to Molly Ringwald. How this, this crazy? Yeah, yeah. She also turned on the lead roles in Pretty Woman and Ghost. And, Paolo, get this, Molly Ringwald is married to a book editor and that book editor worked for years with jt leroy
2: weird isn't
0: that weird the jt
2: leroy connection keeps coming back yeah everyone who listens please watch author the jt leroy story because this has paid off so well for us ever since watching it it has changed our lives yeah it comes up in everything you'll never look at michael pitt the same way again,
0: <laughs> Or Winona Ryder. Or
2: Gus Van Zandt. A lot of people are implicated <laughs> by this movie. You gotta watch it. Um,
0: and then, uh, okay. Oh, we should
1: mention too on Mellie Ringwald, she's the only one that ever suspects Doreen, or Carol Kane is the killer. Cause, and she escapes.
2: Yeah. yeah and she, she just she was wearing dagger earrings at one point. Yeah. Like, towards the end of the movie she just had, like, they were just daggers hanging straight down there. They're they
0: really awesome earrings. Oh man. I didn't notice that. I would have loved those. Um, Then Triple Horn, uh, you may know her from Basic Instinct, The Firm. She's the best wife on Big Big Love. Love. She
2: was on an episode (laughs) of Mr. Show. She has a brief uh, guest appearance on Mr. Show.
0: Um, And I found out some random trivia about her. She was originally cast as Uma Thurman's role in Pulp Fiction. Oh, man,
2: what a loss for her. (laughs) Yeah, but she had to drop out, so. Man, Uma Thurman's way better in that role, but it's like. Yeah, uh, I don't
0: know if she could have pulled it off. Jennifer is
2: like too friendly of a woman. Like yeah. Uma Thurman has that like ability to be really alienating. That that. That's gets why to
0: she. But that's why she's the best wife on Big Love yeah. is because she is like very kind but also conflicted. She's good at that. Yeah, hey,
1: Chloe Sevigny was my favorite because she just was awful the whole time. Yeah, she was so
0: <laughs> awful. And then uh, Jen, uh, Jennifer Goodwin. Goodwin. Oh, she was my least favorite.
1: Easy, hands down. Yeah. Yeah, Lee's favorite.
0: Yeah, she was whiny. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, and then Michael Imperioli, Pir- he's the IT guy. You might know him from The Sopranos, yep. which is how I know him. Um, but also, he's the guy in Goodfellows who gets shot in the foot.
2: Ooh. Wait, did you call it Goodfellows.
0: No, Goodfellas. It's not like you
2: said
1: goodfellas. I
0: am having some... Uh, <laughs> listeners, I'm sick. I'm sorry. I'm stuttering a <laughs> lot, and I, my brain is half I working. I also heard, fellas.
1: Okay. It God good. damn it. You know, you're going to go through,
0: and you're going to like, re-listen to it while you're editing, and you're going to like emphasize it. You turn the <laughs> volume up. It's so great. <laughs> goodfellas. Uh, his random trivia piece that I found was that he was engaged for a short period of time, to Lily Taylor. Okay. And they were both in I <laughs> Shot Andy Warhol. Which is a tie back to Cindy Sherman.
2: Because.
0: Because Cindy Sherman's ex-husband is, uh okay, I'm probably going to slaughter his name because he's French, but it's Michel Audier. I think that's how you say it. But he's a French experimental filmmaker, and he was married to the Andy Warhol uh, actress Viva. All right. And Viva is the mother of Gabby Hoffman. Oh, cool. Weird. And because. That explains
2: Gabby Hoffman.
0: Because, uh, because Cindy Sherman was married to him she adopted Gabby Hoffman sh- for a short period of time. So Cindy Sherman is the ex Oh wait, I'm sorry. I'm going all wrong. I'm sorry. Her Cindy Sherman's ex-husband is the stepfather of Gabby Hoffman. I'm sorry. I I fucked that all up. Um but no, I'm, okay. I'm deeply confused. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, but her ex-husband um Cindy Sherman's ex-husband had another daughter who she did adopt, so she did have a stepdaughter with him, but her stepdaughter uh, was another actress. Her name's Alexandria Auder, and she was in Basket Case 2. Oh. She's the nurse. Uh, a very so, small part. <laughs> so, yeah, so he, that, that um, so, yeah, it was just like a cycle. I also learned that Cindy Sherman was in another movie. Oh. Uh, In 2015, called Prima Donna, which is a movie that she did with Rufus Wainwright. Oh, my God. What? Isn't that crazy? uh, It's his stage version of his contemporary opera of the same name, and she plays the aging soprano, the Prima Donna.
2: Weird.
0: Isn't okay. that so weird? Yeah. I'm so now star. I kind of want to watch that because I love Rufus Wainwright, and I I obviously like Cindy Sherman. So a staged version of a Rufus Wainwright opera with Cindy Sherman? Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, I also found out that the cinematographer for this movie, uh, Russell Fine, he was a cinematographer on O. <laughs> Remember yeah. that movie? With uh, Julia Stiles, it's like the... McKay Pfeiffer. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like Othello,
2: the... but in a, yeah. in, with basketball.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He also was the cinematographer for Nagoi Katsi.
2: The worst of the Katsi movies. Yeah, okay.
0: He did Sherry Baby. He also did a bunch of episodes of The Wire. Nice. And he also did a, uh, a bunch of episodes of White Collar. Nice.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he and Willie Garson are close.
0: <laughs> Fingers crossed. Maybe. But yeah, just like, it was so weird going through this movie to see like all the different ways that she's connected to other artists that I really respect and love and how she kind of like, she's like this web of, of, uh, connectivity to a very interesting movement in art. Yeah.
2: You could almost say that if she wasn't so interesting and connected to so many things we wouldn't have much to talk about
0: with <laughs> <in> this movie. <laughs> hey,
2: you could say that. Yeah, you could say that. Um, I wanted to point out just some uh, shots that I thought were pretty interesting for the movie. Or just moments, just some one-off things. Um, first off, we mentioned the homeless man uh, when Doreen, I think it's when she drags Gary's body into her car, uh-huh. there's a homeless guy who's just, like, in front of her car, and he stands up and is, hanging like,
0: out in the he's just, garage. like, huh?
2: doing, like, a, the <laughs> usual, like, I think I see something uh, nonsense. And she appears to bribe him with a quarter to not say anything. <laughs> I don't but know. I
0: think he, and she some... later kills him. Yeah, she later kills him. Okay.
2: But even still, it was, like, it, I, I just thought that she was so funny. She might have even
0: killed him that night. I don't yeah, know, You that. don't
1: have a timeline. Yeah. He just shows up in the basement, and you're like, oh, they're having a tea party with him now. He's dead. Yeah. He's but it's
2: dead. Just, I thought that was such a funny action. Like, someone thought to be like, okay, so you'll give him money, and they're <laughs> yeah. like, one shiny coin is an actor that
0: but that, to bribe
2: somebody. That's
0: another like uh, thing I was trying to read into was Cindy Sherman's comments on greed. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got the embezzlement, uh, that Nora's doing, and then you've got the idea that, you know, uh, everybody's kind of trying to, like, vie for their job and, and say how important they are. Like, you know, you've got Molly Ringwald's character who comes back after being fired and is like, you gotta give me my job back! And there's no reason for them to give her her job back, but she's like, I'm valuable, and
2: I'm going to sue if you don't give me my job. Yeah, she's really fighting for it. Yeah,
0: and there's just there were just a lot of moments revolving, like, um, Nora's character giving Carol Kane that bag of clothing. Yeah. And just, like, a lot of things that kind of revolved around money and greed, and I was wondering... Or if, just, like,
2: the character's different points of view on money. Like, it's never, like, overt, but it is a yeah. definite sub-theme of the movie, of the way yeah. in which...
0: Like, well and so maybe a quarter to that homeless guy was yeah it did the seem best like, thing ever <laughs> it did seem
2: like the money part of the job was not an issue to Doreen, it clearly was to to nora nora was very much in it for the money um but doreen seemed to be the thing that upset her was the collapse of normalcy like having this job and having like to be there just having this normal work environment
0: i interpreted it as she was really disappointed that now she was gonna have to be at home all the time with her mom
2: yeah she didn't have an escape from her mom and actually that makes sense because then she brought her office to her basement because then she's like well if i escape from i my have home, to
0: I, work from home
2: then i can have my whole office here i always have that escape available it's not, it's not getting further away. It's actually even closer. Yeah.
0: Than well, was. and her mom can't go in the basement. Yeah. So because another... her mom's, uh, handicapped.
2: Yeah. So it's just another reason.
0: Yeah. I also liked the, the quote that she did in the narration where she said, the key to a successful mother-daughter relationship is adventure. <laughs> I heard
2: Independence.
0: Well, I think Independence was in there too. But independence
2: I've, and Adventure. Yeah,
0: yeah. like you well, know, and the, separate separate lives. Well, basically, and, and <laughs> as that's
2: happening, she is unplugging on screen. Doreen is unplugging the power cord for the Jerry chair so that her mom can come downstairs. Yeah, but her mom just like calls a neighbor girl to come and get it plugged back in, so mm-hmm. she she can't even keep her mom upstairs. I uh, another shot I wanted to point out. Um, this is a really brief one, but. When all the bodies are in the basement, uh, there's a there's a shot to kind of emphasize how the basement must smell and feel, and it's a shot of the TV, and the TV has static on it, and there's just flies all yeah. over the TV. Yeah,
1: that's more cringeworthy, I think, than just, like, seeing some of the bodies. Yeah,
2: because you can just imagine the smell in that room in that moment, and it's so it's such an interesting visual, because you're not seeing the detail of the flies, you're just seeing their silhouettes on the staticky background, but it's just, I don't know, it's a really nice... Nice little shot. That's uh, a very cool image. And then the one other thing I wanted to point out is, at the very end of the movie, Doreen uh, burns her house down with all the bodies in it so that she can escape to be in an <laughs> office somewhere else. But she, when she burns the house down, it cuts to an outside shot of the house burning. Or what I should say is a, a, a shot of flames with a green screen of a house <laughs> behind it. Which, in all fairness, why bother wasting a ton of money on burning something if no other part of the movie was expensive. But it's just so blatantly not a burning house. It's so blatantly like, yes, and fire. Uh, you get it, audience. Moving on. It's a very, <laughs> yeah. very blatantly half-assed moment, but it's actually kind of funny how yeah. half-assed it is.
0: Uh, well, and it ends with uh, Carol Keane's character driving away to be an office manager somewhere else. But she oh, kept yeah. a couple body parts. Yeah, whose body parts did she keep? I uh, it was hard that out. to tell
1: because it looked like, it looked like Nora's head, but it was like reddish hair. Like, it was almost it like w- she It was like May.
0: S- it was just all the best parts. Oh, yeah. Oh, May is so good. That's a great movie. Oh, yeah. That's a real fucked up movie, though.
2: Another movie in which a woman kills a bunch of people oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> to be happy. I
2: didn't think
1: about that. Yeah.
2: Man, when there's female serial killers, that's like—I mean, that's that's the the psychological thing they say anyway—is that men kill for all sorts of reasons, but women primarily kill for convenience or not—not not the convenience of killing, but to create convenience in for their homes, lives to make uh, their lives better. And yeah, that, every example we keep coming up with seems is, to is follow May
0: that. also directed by a woman? No. Okay, I was just curious, man, but
2: it is directed by a man named Lucky. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I can't believe I didn't think about that to compare it to, because she wanted a friend in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And Dory needed a friend.
2: And she kept the body in her house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and I'm just thinking about that on top of the voices, which we talked about earlier. He,
2: he keeps the bodies in his house, but that's made by a woman.
0: Yeah, it's made by a woman. Yeah. So i was just wondering, like, maybe there's some kind of interesting theme where... These women directors are exploring serial killer violence through. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It, 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 it somebody, seems like there's some kind of uh, somebody
2: else should track. write somebody else should write a good book about female serial killers in media because there's it's not.
0: Oh yeah, some get on that film students. That's I, a master's thesis waiting yeah, to happen.
2: Free freebie freebie <laughs> thesis right there.
0: <laughs> freebie thesis. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get you a t-shirt that says that.
2: Freebie thesie with a, a thumbs up on it. You'll be like, what the fuck is this t-shirt? it
0: will be like, you don't need to know.
2: Or ask me, ask me for freebie thesie.
0: <laughs> A-M-A,
1: freebie <laughs> thesie. All
2: right, Emily, do you have any extra stuff that you want to point out from this movie?
0: No, I feel like we've covered it all.
2: Carrie, do you?
0: I mean, i got a hell of a lot of stuff I could still talk about with Cindy Schumer Cindy um, Schumer. God damn it,
2: <laughs> <laughs> guys! Don't you dare drag the Schumer family into this. You heard our train. You were in our trainer, during You know how we feel about that family.
0: I don't even know how I said that. <laughs> it's this medicine. Um, we'll
2: say. I mean, okay. Yeah, go over so some so this stuff.
0: One of the one of the things I do want to mention, just because this piece of trivia, I literally laughed out loud when I learned it. Um, so I mentioned earlier that Cindy Sherman had. Uh, a series she did called Untitled Film Stills and in 2014 <laughs> in 2014 James Franco did a exhibition which he called New Film Stills where he recreated 29 of her images with himself <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and he got almost entirely negative reviews like some of the reviews I read one of them called it embarrassingly clueless. <laughs> uh. oh,
2: man. Like,
0: how can you miss the, the whole point of why her exhibition was powerful is, first of all, she did it in, like, the 70s and 80s. Yeah. I want to say it was, like, early 80s. And she's using herself in scenes of, like, you Know female violence, yeah. or it's like very it's a comment on feminine, yeah. yeah. It's a p- comment on femininity and ob- objectification. And then James Franco like, was like, I can do that. Why would
2: we put a man in these photos? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why did nobody put a man in this? Yeah, I did, like. I really don't understand James Franco. I want to respect him as an artist because he is. Constantly creating things, but then he does stupid shit like that, or he makes that terrible movie with Brian Cranston, or he, well, he takes he...
1: that weird uh, nude selfie and puts it on Instagram.
2: <laughs> James Franco is like me in college, where he's like, I'm living on my own and I have all the, I have money available to me because I had loans at the time, and so I would just go to the bookstore and buy every book or DVD I'd ever heard of because I was like, I have money to do this. His thing is that he also has money. To make his versions of yeah. those things. And yeah, how many
0: poetry books has he written now? Like
2: so many. four? And you notice, have you ever read a good review of a movie he's made, of a book he's written, of a piece of art he's done? You've never read any of that. <laughs> it does not exist. He is only good sometimes as an actor. Yeah. And yet he just keeps going because he makes just enough money. He to, must
0: be to like not. the most charismatic guy ever. Yeah, he has to. Be. I mean, I'm still in love with him. I oh yeah, he's gorgeous. He's real nice to look at. I still love. And the, I he I don't think he's responsible for this. I think he just somehow got involved. But there was an art project a couple of years ago where somebody uh, recruited him. They set up a room and they put a video camera in the room and the, and basically you can pay to watch him destroy the room for thirty minutes. Are you sure that's not Shia LaBeouf? No, no, it's James it Franco. Sounds like a Shia LaBeouf. Oh yeah, thing. yeah. I bet they competed for the, the role, but <laughs> but yeah, like that that kind of stuff. I'm totally for using James Franco for that,
1: but like I think he's him somebody not- who he because he's in a position of privilege he's dedicated himself to constantly learning
0: yeah. and yeah so he's, and he's, not, he's I, trying, and I can't discredit him for that cuz that's awesome he's
2: trying to engage in like with really highbrow art and highbrow literature and he wants to like be like oh i respect this this is a great thing i want to be able to make a movie version of it he is just the problem is that he is
0: He's not he's the like artist
2: to like do 1, it. He's 1% as talented as he is full of taste. Like, he he obviously can recognize other people's great works. He just does not ha- seem to have the tools as an artist to create them. Or to yeah. express what is Or maybe great about the them.
0: discretion to key create line, them.
2: Keep in mind, James Franco has directed a Cormac McCarthy adaptation. Like, he has made a movie of a Cormac McCarthy book.
0: Which um, one's that?
2: Child of God, which mm-hmm. involves necrophilia. There are scenes of necrophilia oh, at least geez. in that book. I haven't seen the movie, but we own the book. Uh, I, I, re- I read most of it in college, and I just I, I didn't hate it. That's that why I suffered reading it. I just was too lazy to finish it. I forgot about <laughs> it, but
0: in right. college.
2: It's a book. It's a Cormac McCarthy book. Right? You saw, we saw the Coen brothers' uh, amazing uh, work adapting yeah. Cormac McCarthy. And some, well, of, and us, some of us have seen Ridley Scott's less successful attempt to adapt Cormac McCarthy in The Counselor. But... Um, James Franco is not Ridley Scott and is definitely not the Cohen brothers. Yeah. Like, there's no reason to think that he has that level of skill as a director.
0: Yeah. And
2: he's trying to tackle the same type of material. Yeah. He tried to direct a William Faulkner novel as a movie. Yeah. He tried to do that. He doesn't... He he's he recognizes that these are great things. He does not have the talent to do it. He should really stick to acting.
1: Like choosing <laughs> 11 choose 63
2: Yeah. I
0: wish that he would do... He would do the thing where he maybe establishes, like, an artist collective, and he just supports those artists with yeah. whatever their projects are.
2: He's a perfect example of someone who should do the Ryan Gosling La La Land thing of use his money to allow people who are actually talented to do their thing in his space. Like, we have the James Franco Center for the Arts, and people are like, man, James Franco's a really nice guy, when he come, when he show up, he'll let us... Produce things and I wouldn't... Have, he should be, like, a Roger Corman figure with his money. If yeah. He's just gonna throw it away. Throw it away to, like, people who don't have the means or to Or just stuff. get,
0: like, really talented artists to write him really great parts.
2: Yeah. He doesn't need to make the stuff if he wants to be so productive. There are so many people who need somebody to open a door for him, and he could be that instead of fucking (laughs) making movies that no one watches except for the few critics who are forced to watch them. Didn't
0: he even make a movie of one of his short stories? Palo
2: Alto got made by somebody else, but he did write the book of short stories. But again, he did not make the movie, so somebody... Presumably, if that movie's good, I haven't seen it, but if the movie's good, it's because somebody who was like, I have the ability to make films, and I understand (laughs) the language of film, so I can adapt these James Franco words into visuals that will connect with an audience, which seems to be the thing that defeats him.
0: I really opened that James Franco door and we went right through it. I didn't realize I hated him
2: this much. I don't really hate James yeah. Franco. It's just kind of like, if we're going to talk about his movies, then yeah, his movies are bad. There's no, there's not even a cultural voice that's like, he's actually really good. There's Yeah, not that well, doesn't exist. I'll
0: say this. He's, he's the worst part of the Spider-Man movies.
2: But he's the best part of the Pineapple Express movie.
0: Uh. <laughs> yeah, he's been great in things. Just and, not
2: recently. And if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have that hilarious scene in 127 Hours where he is on the camera talking to himself in real life as if he's on a game show that is interviewing him about why he is trapped in the canyon. That scene is just so dumb. Not <laughs> All right.
0: Okay, bringing it back to Cindy Sherman. Uh, another thing I learned about her is that from 2007 to 2011... She dated David Byrne.
2: Mm.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. She's got good taste. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I wish I they had collaborated, and maybe they did, and I don't know and about it.
2: A, she took a photo for one of his albums or something. Yeah.
0: She did do a couple albums for um, the band Babes in Toyland. Nope.
2: I never yeah, I've them. never
0: heard of them. Yeah. But they are like a punk band in the, I think, in the 80s. Um, she also set a record for the most expensive photograph, uh, I think since it's since then it's been broken. That yeah, record's been broken at the time. But in 2011, she sold a piece called Untitled Number 96 for 3.89 million.
2: Nice.
0: One photograph. <laughs> Man. For almost four million dollars. Could
2: you imagine? <laughs>
0: yeah. You know, and I got to this is a, a maybe a, a tangent, but. I wonder if she gets that money because I think it was sold at auction by the owner. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if she gets some kind of like cut because, you know, she produced it, but she wasn't necessarily the owner who was selling it. I don't know how that works. Know. Write in,
2: listeners, and tell us how this <laughs> works.
0: I worked at an auction house. So I'm pretty sure that's not Are uh, you it the works. one that bought that? I would piece.
2: assume there's no there's no like artist royalties.
0: Yeah, I don't think she got, she got that $4 million. Yeah, I
2: assume she she sold it at one point
1: to yeah. somebody. And Actually,
0: her first series, the Bus Riders series, all of those prints she sold for $1,000 each, yeah. and now they're worth just yeah. millions. I
2: assume what happens is by it selling that much... It it means the value of all of her other yeah. pieces automatically.
0: Yeah. Reversed. So she could sell something new for somewhere. It's
2: not like there's like some Picassos laying around that are still worth like $5 because nobody wants them. It's just like what you have at a certain point you become inherently valuable <laughs> and yeah. everything that you've touched is great. Yeah. Um, is that it for your trivia? Did you burn it all out?
0: Um, I mean, I could get into more of like her background with uh, hall walls, but I, I don't really need to do that. The only other thing that I had uh, to mention was um, that she's still making art. Good. She's still doing, <laughs> doing her thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, no offense to photographers, but photography is something that hopefully you are able to do for most all your life. Yeah,
0: and she has done digital. She's she's switched to digital. I don't know if, if she's switched fully, but she's experimented with it. So it sounds like she's open to pretty much the entire medium of photography, however which way she can get it. Okay. So, so yeah, she's still working. Kicking ass, taking names, but not making any movies.
2: Good for her. Uh, oh, that
0: was it. This, this movie, the reason I... I, I I asked if you guys liked it. Is like I said, I only saw like negative reviews. This movie barely made thirty eight thousand dollars, so I couldn't find anywhere how much this movie cost. I would assume it cost at least a million.
2: Yeah, I, I had a I had good to guess, cast.
0: It looked really good.
2: I, yeah, it definitely it looks really high quality. It doesn't seem to be. It it couldn't have been more than like. High estimate five million. It's yeah. definitely a low budget movie. There's barely any locations or sets. It's like it, it looks. It doesn't look cheap, but it looks affordable for. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, but
0: yeah, it didn't even it didn't even break fifty grand. Yeah,
2: it made like it's Pat the movie money. Yeah,
0: that movie. Didn't there make was a movie it? called It's Pat
1: yep. <laughs> about Pat.
2: Yep, Dave Foley is also in it. Okay. Uh,
1: that's on my watch It's list now. it's considered it's
2: considered like one of the all time worst movies ever. I believe Quentin Tarantino did some uncredited rewrites on it because Julia Sweeney and him are close friends.
1: Yeah,
0: fucking, I yeah. love those.
1: Uh, it's Pat sketches. I had a
0: good friend in high school who was obsessed with its Pat, and he actually created his own language where he used colloquialisms of Pat as like interpretive points in the language he was creating. Oh, my God. This is an
2: utterly unexpected rabbit.
0: (laughs) 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 He's a very cool guy uh, in high school. I don't know what he's up to now, but, yeah.
2: Hey, dude. Pat. Pat,
0: pat,
2: pat, 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 That's
0: Blake Turow. Blake.
2: You're going to name drop him. All right, everybody.
0: Hey, Blake. You listening? (laughs) Where are you, dude? Uh,
2: If you don't have any more trivia, do you want to get into final thoughts? Teachable moments? Yes. All right, I have a teachable <laughs> moment ready, so okay, oh,
0: go 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 okay. go, well, go go.
2: So go. one thing I was thinking about a lot is that this is a serial killer movie that isn't really scary and it's also not really dramatic and it doesn't. And it
0: only has two scenes of gross.
2: Yeah, it usually it, it doesn't really uh, veer into the usual expected dramatic modes that this type of movie would demand, uh, but it does kind of. It does technically, I guess, fit the genre of horror. And it is a good reminder of how genres of all kinds have very, very broad definitions. And you can do a lot under the umbrella. And I'm not necessarily trying to argue that this is the best horror movie ever, or the best serial killer movie ever, but it is a very interesting interpretation of that genre, especially because it is so um, anti-narrative and so obsessed with, details that don't necessarily affect the plot or heighten the, uh, heighten anything down the mood. But it sets a very interesting little universe for these like horror-type uh, scenes to happen. And when we do get the horror payoff, where Gian Triplehorn sees all the bodies and sticks her hand through the body, it's not scary, but it does have that revulsion element to it. It is sticking to horror tropes, and there is that core horror uh, structure to it and so i guess that's my teachable moment is just that as much as this movie can be appreciated for a lot of things it's still worthwhile to consider it as a different approach to the horror genre
0: the horror genre seems to have the loosest boundaries
2: it really does but at the same time like it seems to be the most constricting because it's so hard to make something that's genuinely scary. But at the same time, if we've learned anything from Stephen King, it's that anything <laughs> can be a horror object. Or any world or environment can be a place that is terrifying Yeah, or scary. well, because
0: life is pretty terrifying.
2: And like we said, Office Killer is not scary. It's not terrifying. But in a very dull magazine, co- a constant consumer magazine, there is a woman who, when she reaches her breaking point, kills all of her co-workers and takes their bodies back home to hang out
1: with But
2: it's not campy. It's not campy either. It's not campy, it's not really dramatic, it's not really scary, but it's still horror. And that's something, uh, if you're going to watch this movie, uh, you should get some good ideas of how far you can push that genre if you dare uh, get into it. Something I'm repeatedly bringing up because I'm still working on a horror screenplay. I'm a very slow writer. Okay, does someone else... (laughs) Have their teachable moment cued
1: Mine's just, like, really quick, that I want to get rid of any and all cat lady stereotypes. I'm very tired of single spinster ladies with cats. I get that it's a joke, but it's tired. Um, and we alluded to Dario Argento's Inferno. Those uh, mothers of death or sisters of death, they all had cats. Yep. Uh, they were also killers. Psycho killers. Spinster ladies are not psycho nor easily fit into tropes.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I just realized the psycho killer connection with David Byrne. Psycho office, killer!
2: Office killer!
0: Kiss, kiss, it. <laughs> uh, Anyway. Sorry about that, listeners. <laughs> I like that, Emily. I. And that's coming from someone who's not a cat lady. I. They're fine. No, no, I mean like, like you're you're not one. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: But like cats themselves, they're fine. I could give or take cats.
0: I think that's the opinion of everyone participating in this podcast yep. right now. <laughs> We're all dog people. Yeah, but you're right. I I, I wish I saw some cat men.
1: Yeah,
2: and there's definitely some. <laughs> there's certainly some mentally ill people well, or dog almost, people. Well, it's almost just
1: like it's like a crutch. Like here's a cat to also imply that she's been celibate for years and she yeah. has some problems with her sexuality. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. My teachable moment is uh, basically off of what I taught myself, which is. I wasn't sure I fully understood this movie. I did the research before we came into watching it this time. And that research research enriched my experience of watching the movie. Because I learned a lot about Cindy Sherman and her work as an artist. Because of that, I was able to appreciate her visuals more. So yeah, I guess my teachable moment is teach yourself.
2: You gotta teach something about the movie (laughs) next time. (laughs) You're, you're in uh, teachable moment probation until next episode,
0: Carrie. <laughs> Hi.
2: Every day until we record another episode, you're going to have to teach yourself something about... I teach you...
0: myself something new every day. I know,
2: but you didn't teach the listeners something new. That's why you're in probation.
0: <laughs> I taught them a bunch about Cindy Schumer. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> I'm Schumer! <an> <laughs> no!
2: Well, on that note, this has been the Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo.
0: I was Carrie. Not anymore. I'm Emily. Thanks for listening, <laughs> everybody. Bye.
2: Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Caron. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carrichafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.vimeo.com slash Paolo or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com slash Paolo Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of u.s copyright law the secret cinema is a product of larry levy productions all rights reserved thanks for listening